Welcome to episode 136 of the Women of the Military podcast. This weekend is Memorial Day. Last year, the week before Memorial Day, I did episode 75, which highlighted women who have given the ultimate sacrifice from World War I to present day. One of those women that I mentioned was Senior Airman Ashton Goodman. She served on the Pangier PRT. And my guest this week is Stacy Shaffrin, who was on that PRT with Ashton. And she told the story of what it was like to be on the PRT, who lost a service member and not just Ashton. Lieutenant Colonel Mark Stratton, Army Master Sergeant Blue Rowe and Abdul Samad were all killed in the attack that Ashton died in. So not only will we hear Stacy's story of serving in the Air Force, which she is still currently serving in the Air Force, but we'll also dive deep into her experience of serving on a PRT and what it was like for her being on the PRT and having such a big loss and tragedy happen during their deployment. I deployed on the PRT two after her for Kapisa, which is really close to Pangir. And so this was a really moving and personal episode for me, and I really hope that you enjoy it. And on this Memorial Day, let's remember those who have given the ultimate sacrifice. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Thanks to Blue Star Families for sponsoring this week's episode. The Blue Star Families Annual Military Family Lifestyle Survey is closing on June 6th. Be a voice for your military community and take the survey today. The survey findings offer insight and data which will inform national leaders, local communities, and decision makers who have the power to advocate for you and drive reform. It's an excellent opportunity to talk about what's working and what your family needs to thrive as a family that serves. I have already completed the survey and I would be honored if you could spend the time to take it today. Your responses are totally confidential and the survey takes about 20 minutes to complete and you can always stop if life gets busy. So head over to bluestarfam.org slash survey 2021 and get your survey done before time runs out on June 6th. And now for this week's interview with Stacy Shafran. Welcome to the show, Stacey. I'm excited to have you here. Hey, Amanda. Such an honor to be able to chat with you today. So let's start the interview with why did you decide to join the military? I love this question because it takes me back to college <laughs> many, many, many years ago. So I went to college in Boulder, Colorado at the University of Colorado, and my dad found a flyer about ROTC. And so neither of us really knew what that was, except he saw that um, it could help pay for school and um, somehow get me in the military. So I didn't really come from 
like neither of my parents served in the military. So, uh, you know, he, uh, he's like, well, this could be a really neat opportunity for you. And so we ended up talking to the, the people at the ROTC detachment there. And I started the process and stuck with it for four years and commissioned and then came into the Air Force that way. So I did grow up with parents who you know, serve the community. I mean, my dad's job in the government was helping like recruit people in and always, you know, he was always volunteering in the community and stuff. So it was within me to know that I wanted to go into some line of work where I was helping and giving back. And so, you know, it all worked out that way. Yeah. So you, your dad just found the flyer and then was like, oh, you could get your education paid for. And then was it just Air Force ROTC? So you didn't look at any of the other branches? No, it was only the Air Force ROTC one. So, you know, it's interesting how things work out in life. That was the only college I applied to. I knew I had to stay in state. I was really big into like journalism stuff in middle school and high school. And so I just remember talking to my yearbook teacher in high school. And I was like, which school out of the two big ones in Colorado should I go to for journalism? And she's like, Boulder. And so that's where I applied. It's the only one I went to. And Air Force ROTC was the only service ROTC program that I looked at. Best decision I ever made. I am still best friends with my classmates to this day. You know, I've been in the Air Force now commissioned for over 20 years. So that was one of the best decisions that I made. And I credit my dad for like pushing me toward that. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of people that I know who went to Boulder, like Mark, the guy who does street shares. And I think my friend Nadia, she went there. And Chris Elstrom, obviously, he connected us. So yes, those people that I know. And I went to... So, I mean, I remember all of us as young, young kids thinking we were going to take on the world. And, you know, we are actually, you know, Mark is doing great things and Nadia is too. So, and so is Chris. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a small world that I like know so many people from one detachment that, <laughs> <laughs> that like I have no connection to because I grew up in California. So it's kind of funny. So you graduated and you said the Air Force ROTC was the best decision you made and you commissioned. And so where did you go? after you graduated? Yes. So I graduated. I, I was, um, I studied journalism in college. And so the Air Force selected me to be a public affairs officer. And before I began my public affairs career, I actually was a gold bar recruiter for a year. And so that was a, another incredible opportunity. I was stationed down at the Air Force Academy. There was an ROTC office there. And so I actually was able to still live at home with my parents and I would just drive down to the Air Force Academy and go to work and travel around Colorado for the year talking to high school students about ROTC and the Air Force Academy. So I did that for a year and then I went off and started my public affairs career and I was at Hanscom Air Force Base initially and... Uh, that's actually outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And yeah, you know, I, it's been a whirlwind since. Yeah. And did you go to, is it Denfo's and the defense information school Yep, at Fort Meade in Maryland? Yeah. And cause I was talking to someone, she said that enlisted and officers go to the same school and, and all the branches. So what was it like to go to something that was joint service and was it officer enlisted in the same classes or? I think I'm trying to remember. I don't remember it being the like the ranks were integrated in that one. I've gone to subsequent courses at Dinfos where the ranks have been merged, but 
I mean, I think, I mean, I went like early 2000s. So obviously things have changed since then, but that was really, you know, probably one of my initial tastes of the joint environments. And I loved it. So the Air Force are public affairs people. That's your career. You don't do a different line of work before you get tracked into PA, like say the army. So it was neat because you are immersed with your classmates who have maybe been in a different career field before they get tracked into public affairs. And so you have the opportunity to learn about the services and people's career fields. And, you know, we all fundamentally do the tactical stuff the same way, but obviously the services, there's little nuances to that. So it was really neat learning about that early on in my career. And I enjoyed the course a lot. I mean, it was in a way it was a refresher from what I did in college. And so, I mean, I did very well in that. And my classmates, you know, a lot of those people are people I still would call on today for, you know, advice or guidance. So I know I said that earlier too about my ROTC classmates. And I think this is a theme actually that I would carry forward. And what we talk about today is that, you know, building this network of people as you go through life is really, really important um, because you never know when you're going to need a community or have questions. I mean, I love being able to connect people and network and, you know, if someone needs help, know who to connect them to. And so that was, you know, Dinfos was an opportunity early on to, to start building that network, especially in the joint community. Yeah, that's like the best part about the military is all the networking and the connections and and how small it is because like how many people you and I know and we we haven't met before, but we have the connections and it's kind of it's really neat how that all works. I guess September 11th happened shortly after you guys went on active you went on active duty. So I commissioned in December of 2000 and I started in the Air Force in like February of 2001 and then September 11th happens and that changed the course of my whole career. That's all I know. That's all we know. Uh, you know, while you were in Iraq and Afghanistan became our missions. I just remember the day September 11th happening, knowing like, okay, you know, raising my right hand and committing to come into the military, like suddenly took on a whole new meaning. Like it, that made it very real. And there were a lot of very real moments that happened in my career. So yes. Yeah. September 11th, you know, it really shaped our generation. For sure. And public affairs officers, I know, deploy a lot because they're in high demand overseas and, and at home. So how many different deployments have you gone on so far in your career? So I've had the opportunity to serve overseas in South Korea and in Southern Italy with NATO. And then I've also deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan several times each. So I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to travel around the world and go to places, you know, most people wouldn't and attend and participate in a number of exercises uh, around the world too. And in the United States. So I've really enjoyed that. I mean, just to be able to go to other countries and support our co-coms, our combatant commands and, you know, more joint environments. Like that's, those have been some serious highlights. You know, it's balanced some of the harder stuff that I've, that I've done. You know, those deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan are, they're unique and they're special, but they're also very hard, as you know and understand. Yeah. Yeah. And we both deployed on a PRT. I was in Pangir province. So Pangir and Capisa are like, they're not right next door, but they're pretty close in Afghanistan. So yeah, you were right after me. So I was there in 08 to 09. And then you were, you said 2010. Yeah, I think there was one PRT rotation between us. Okay. Yeah, the um, 
The Provincial Reconstruction Team mission, I, I know you've talked about it. I've I've heard you talk about it too, like on your intro uh, for the podcast. It was a really special mission. I mean, if you could think about a deployment where you're actually like out living amongst the local population and like really involved in in what our mission was over there, you know, reconstruction development, engaging with the population and couldn't have asked for a better opportunity in that sense. Um, you know, my first deployment to Afghanistan, I was actually at the headquarters in Kabul at ISAF. And, you know, I was like on the compounds and, you know, I was working in the media operations center and I would see all the reports of everything happening around the AOR, their responsibility. And I was like, oh, I wish I was out there. You know, I want to be the one out there. And funny how, you know, be careful what you say, because, you know, that happens. I, I had, I secured one of those PRT missions, you know, and I got to experience firsthand what that was like. So yeah, I, um, I had like three weeks notice for that deployment, actually. I had four. I yeah, beat you. See, isn't that crazy? Like for anyone who's listening, uh, who may not understand what that is, it, essentially you find out one day you just go into work and you get this tasking that's ordering you to deploy and you have three weeks to be gone for a year. And um, that was, that deployment like changed my life, the course of my life. And so it, uh, yeah, I mean, the three weeks notice was not the biggest issue that would come from all of that, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, I think it's hard for people to relate to what that even means. You know, I didn't, I, I still don't have children and I'm not married, but like for anyone who has family, you know, you have to like really figure out what you're going to do with your family, your pets, your home, your stuff, like. Yeah. And you have to do a whole like pre-deployment checklist that's supposed to take you like weeks to do. And you have like three weeks and plus you're trying to get all your doctor's appointment, you know, firing weapons, getting qualified on all the different trainings. There's a lot to do. And then to be like, and you also only have three weeks and you're actually leaving. <laughs> yeah. I had about a month from when I found out to when I left to go to Indiana for our training and I didn't have kids. I just, my husband, but I just remember the first day being like in shock because I was like, wait, what are you asking me to do? And then getting the checklist and being like, oh my goodness, I have like so many things I have to get done before I leave. And it was a little overwhelming. I didn't really have time to think about what was coming. Yes. Yeah. But that was common at that point, like where we were in the Air Force. I mean, the operations tempo was very high. People were deploying. The dwell was very like short. Like you would go, like people would come back for a little bit. They'd go again. And it was, it was very stressful. It was stressful on the people who were still at home, you know, having to carry on the mission. And then, you know, on the people who were deploying and like overseas. So yeah, I mean it's it's different now. It's slowed down. It's it's not anywhere near that, but um whew, it was intense. I you know, I just yeah, that was stressful. So <laughs> I'm glad glad you relate to it. Yeah. I haven't really ever talked about the training, but like my PRT training was four months long and we did language training. Was yours a similar length and did you learn Dari and Yeah, so that's that's cool that you were able to do the language part. I wish I would have been able to do the language part because I think that would have been really helpful. However, I think since it was such short notice and the way it all played out, they didn't have the public affairs people for whatever reason. Like I didn't go to that language school in Indiana. I went straight to Fort Bragg. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I spent three months at Fort Bragg getting ready to deploy. And um, yeah, anyone who spent any time on Fort Bragg I can relate to any stories you may have. Like we were living in these old World War II barracks. Um, you know, we were doing every imaginable training possible. And uh, I mean, it was great. 
training, but you know, it was three months and then we still had the full like year to like be gone. So, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting because I was just, like we said, two rotations after you and I did my whole training in Indiana at Camp Atterbury. I can't remember. They probably changed it at some point yeah. then, but I have been to Camp Atterbury. So I, I went to an exercise out there and that's also kind of in the middle of nowhere. Yes, it is. <laughs> Actually, we were in training from November to February and it like snowed a ton and we had to like do these exercises in the snow. Yeah. Yeah. So I had the opposite. Yeah. It was super hot and humid and there were so many bugs and we were in the woods. I mean, it was just like everybody was just excited to deploy and like get to Afghanistan after that. So I'm sure you probably, you guys felt the same way. <laughs> we were like, is this train over? Can we just go to this war zone? Yeah, that's interesting that it was that it's so long and then that you both that we were both like, can we just go over there so we can start the deployment? No, I mean, it's uh, like looking back now, I'm like, how did how did I just accept like do that? I mean, obviously we accept it and do it because that's what our job is. But like, wow, I don't know if you'd done anything before that, but I actually I mean, I had volunteered and I had a year in Korea. And so, you know, I thought that was a big deal at the time. Yeah, I, I think um it's interesting how your perspective changes with everything. So sure. So Panjshir is in a relatively safe area of Afghanistan, or at least it was in like 2008, 2010 area. But there's still risk when going to war. And I know that you guys experienced loss on your team. So can you talk a little bit about that and how it affected you and your team? So yes, Panjshir province is, it was considered relatively safe. It was in a beautiful area of Afghanistan. Uh, it was very green in the springtime and like the people were relatively friendly to us. We were able to travel around the province to do our work without having to be in Humvees and up-armor vehicles. So, um, but we were always still wearing all of our gear and we would have our weapons. So like we always felt safe within the province too. And um, so this was toward the end. So we were due to rotate out of country in July of 2009. And we would routinely send convoys uh, to Bagram Air Base. So that way people could you know, go, to, go pick up what they needed to maybe at like the BX or we would pick up our mail and we would also get our food. We had to bring everything back in for our FOB, our operating base. So that's why we would send these convoys to Bagram. And you know, I'd been on a number of them, never an issue to do those. We would take our Humvees and mix them in uh, with our other like vehicles. So that way, you know, it was safe. But uh, we actually like had sent people out. It was Memorial Day and we sent a team out to go to Bagram. So that way people could go on R&R, which was like a pass to go on leave. And so the, the people going on leave and everyone who needed to like resupply or get whatever, you know, they were part of that mission. And so I actually was originally supposed to be part of that mission, but then we had received an incel report that said that the route wasn't safe. And so our commander scaled back, you know, the attendees and because um, we didn't have enough up on our vehicles to take everybody at that point. So I didn't go on that mission that day. And I... Like our team, they left early in the morning and they got hit by a suicide bomber. So 
we heard that, uh, that the incident happened through our communications folks who were manning like our tiny little like communications room. And so our, our bait, like our little base, it was very small. I mean, our team was like 40 people. So it was a very small little compound. And so we all like huddled in and like listened around so we could like hear what was going on. And, you know, we could hear the panic and the commotion. And we didn't know, like at that point, you know, if people had been hurt or what had happened, but, um, you know, it was a, it was a very long, painful day. Um, so we, uh, we did end up losing, uh, four of our teammates to include our commander and, uh, yeah. So that was a day that like, you know, it changed, <laughs> it changed my life. It changed those families. It changed uh, our Afghan local national who was working with us. Like he died in there too. So his family didn't even know that he was working with us, which was common for uh, Afghans, you know, working with Americans. Like it just, it wasn't safe for them to disclose that. So yeah, so that happened. It was Memorial Day weekend. So Memorial Day, May 26, 2009. Um, when it happens. And uh, it was at the tail end that we'd had like a very nice kind of like down day where we were able to, you know, pause and reflect on Memorial Day. And our commander, you know, he, once we finished our work, he encouraged us to like gather and we had dinner and like, it was just like a really nice like afternoon. And then, you know, the next day, this is when that happens. Yeah. When I was deployed, we got down days on like holidays and so thinking about like we had like a barbecue and (laughs) somehow they would find hamburgers and hot dogs and it was like a special like we got to wear civilian clothes that was like the big thing that our commander let us do that so I could wear my hair down which was always exciting see exactly like that's the magic in a sense of being deployed I was telling someone about this recently like I don't know where people find things I don't know how things just magically show up but they just do and it's really special, like what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I'm just thinking about the emotion of like the team of like having that day of like relaxation and a war zone, but it's, I don't know if you can put it into words, like how much stress relief was given by like having that celebration type day. And then for the very next day, like the reality of war to hit you, it's not that it would make it harder, but it just, that would be really hard to go from like one extreme to the other. Yes, you know, it, it, it was. And uh, it's interesting that you put it that way because I, I guess I just haven't thought about it that way. I mean, I am forever thankful that we had that afternoon and we had like a pie eating contest. And uh, one of the guys who, the, the army master sergeant, you know, who was killed, like I remember like him, you know, in the pie eating contest and like we took photos and, you know, there was a barbecue and, uh, yeah, it was just really special. So it was good to have those memories because we didn't, I mean, obviously you can't predict what's going to happen the next day, but, um, you know, also I think it was, it was around that weekend too. Um, one of the missions that I had done was with a female senior airman, Ashton Goodman, who also passed away. You know, she, she became like my little shadow. She was a vehicle. Uh, she was one of our drivers. So she was like a logistics troop and she, um, she was very young. She was like 22 years old. And so she was just used to always being around the guys and like mechanic stuff and being dirty. And, but she had like a, an interest in writing. And so she volunteered to like, help me put together our team's yearbook and also help out with the women's affairs stuff. I don't know if you had the chance to do that, but 
the males on our team obviously couldn't go and interact with the women, the locals. It's just not acceptable. So, you know, it was pretty special to be um, able to go and meet with the women um, and they would take back their burkas and we would like to sit there and have these conversations. And Ashton, like she would accompany me on, on some of that. So I was fortunate to have like photos of her doing that. And she, I helped her get published. She wrote an article that got published, I believe on the Air Force website. Like she was just very proud of these things. And I was very proud that I was able to just kind of help mentor this young airman and like help her accomplish some, some neat things. And but I have a photo actually um, of the airmen and our commander. So Senior Emma Goodman and Lieutenant Colonel Mark Stratton, they were on top of the hill behind our fob overlooking the valley in Pangier. And we had done a hike, like our commander would let us um, go hike up this big hill for exercise and like morale. Uh, we don't have our gear obviously, but um, I have a photo of the two of them. And it's just, every time I see that photo, I just wonder, like, it's only the two of them. They both died. And I'm like, did they know? Like, you know, I mean, it's just, it was too, too ironic um, that I was like, that I took that photo of the two of them, like so close to their death. So, you know, it was just like leading up to it. It was just neat to have had these opportunities amongst the mission to like spend time with these incredible humans and document them and like create memories that their families could keep. PA is such a pivotal role on the PRT because not only are you going out on the missions and you're sharing the story of the PA to like help get the mission of the PA out to the locals, you're also like collecting our stories and then writing articles and and like and we had a Facebook page that the PA team was using. And so I know how pivotal and how involved the PA team is because you guys know so much about each and every person because you're doing like part of your story (laughs) and so I can see and especially you have that special connection with Ashton helping her write an article and get it published and so that that just must have been so hard to go through and and to experience and I think I know it's probably not easy to talk about, but it just gives a different level of insight to people to understand like what it's like when someone on your team dies overseas. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, public affairs uh, on that mission was, it was, it was really cool because you're right. Like I did have the responsibility of telling our, our story. And I also had the responsibility of working with the like communications people within like our province, the Afghans. So like I would bring our commander and we'd go to the radio station and he would do interviews and we'd use a translator um, for anyone who's curious on that. Um, Our interpreters were, you know, part of our family and our team. I don't think they get enough credit for the mission that we just finished and that we're wrapping up in Afghanistan because we couldn't have done it without them. So lots of neat opportunities, you know, whenever my commander had uh, meetings with the provincial uh, leadership, like we'd go, I'd cover that. It was just showing this teamwork and really just empowering uh, the population there. And so it was neat to have a front row seat to that. And um, you're right. Like I did, I, I really just tried to like get to know everyone and help like tell their story back to their communities and yeah. I, uh, so one of the unfortunate aspects, you know, when they were killed is that we had to pack up all of their stuff. And so I was the only female officer on our team. And I, 
and there were not that many women in general on our team, but I had the responsibility of, I was honored to have the responsibility of packing up Ashton stuff. And uh, I mean, that thing really prepares you. The three months at Fort Bragg, you know, didn't, doesn't prepare you for, you know, having to pack up someone's possessions and know that they're going back home to their family. So a lot of care went into that. And uh, I feel special that I was, you know, one of the last ones to be able to touch her stuff and like send it back to her family. So. Yeah, that's another aspect that I don't think people talk about is that someone, someone who's on your team has to pack up the stuff and send it home to your families. And- I know it's, it's, so I don't, obviously like this is stuff I don't think about like as much anymore. And so, and no one, I mean, this isn't like kind of stuff you talk about, like when you're at work, like <laughs> just BSing with people, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that happen. Um, I was part of the crew, you know, we obviously had a memorial at our, at our little fob and I think that that was probably one of the harder aspects of it because we made um, a memorial with, uh, you know, you'll see these pictures where like their combat boots or with their dog tag and the weapons. And we had a lot of people come to the FOB so that way they could like pay respects. So it's, it was not a common thing for a PRT commander to be killed. So it caught a lot of attention. And so we had a lot of distinguished visitors who would come and for the memorial, but someone, you know, on the team made a slideshow and uh, put all the pictures together. And I mean, to this day, when I hear this song by Journey, like I, I can't <laughs> like, um, you know, and I think like that's something too I've learned. And I try to like help people understand is like your mind will forever lock on to some of these things. And so, you know, I think we mean well, like creating these tributes or like associating songs or we're doing things, but, um, you know, when you're dealing with the effects of PTSD, um, you know, these are the little things that will like be triggers forever. You know, I'll be at a workout like at Orange Theory and I'll hear that song come on. And I like, like, I mean, I'm, I'm better. I'm getting better about it now all these years later, but like, you know, I'll, it causes me to like go back to like that slideshow and like think of Ashton because it was set to her, her photos. And uh, so, uh that's a really good example of explaining PTSD to people who don't understand it because certain things that are really like a song or like for me getting stuck in traffic for some reason, sometimes I like freak out and like different triggers that happen in normal day life. Like I know fireworks is a big trigger for a lot of veterans. And like, even though you know that, it's just a song or you're just stuck in traffic or you know it's 4th of July and it's fireworks, it still sets you right back to that place. And so that's a really good way to explain it, especially for someone who doesn't understand what it's like. And it's stuff that you, like you're working out and then all of a sudden the song comes on and you're not expecting to be triggered and go back there because you're in a safe place working out. And then it's just, you know. Yeah, I... uh... I appreciate you like saying that because you're right. I think, you know, so here's another interesting thing. Like, first off, it's just an honor to be able to talk to another woman about this. I think so many times, like what I've noticed is if people don't associate PTSD, combat related PTSD with women, um, let alone women officers. I mean, it doesn't, I forget the rank women in general, like people don't understand that we like experience this too. And Um, And we experience it in different ways. I mean, everyone experiences hard things in their own way. So there's what I've noticed, though, is that a lot of times women don't have the opportunity 
for their like stories to be told or for people to understand um, that they're affected by it. And I mean, I just really appreciate that you've created this, like this safe space for us to like talk about it and actually just bring light to the fact that our women serving in the military, um, you know, we, we have these moments too, and they affect us. And a lot of times we don't talk about it. Um, I think it's harder and it's also harder if you don't have like a visible wound, you know, and I've noticed a lot of time being around like wounded warriors or people who have been injured somehow, like if you're missing a limb or there's a visible sign that you've been injured. You're usually a male enlisted uh, member who's, you know, somehow been injured. And so people just automatically like assume and know what to say or think, you know, with that, but like for our female service members, it's a lot harder. And I think a lot of us just don't, we just keep it in and don't talk about it. And I've heard you about how women like are like, people don't know, they don't like usually know that you're in the military, whereas our male spouses or friends, you know, the haircut, the image, you know, people automatically are like, oh, you're the dependents and you're the service member. So. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started collecting stories i did a deployment series and the last question i asked people was what do people say when they find out you deployed and woman after woman after woman said nobody knows i deployed because i don't talk about it and i was like nobody knows and like the deployment series wasn't supposed to be focused on women but that's who filled out my survey and and so it ended up so i don't know what mel's would have said because i didn't have I only have one Mel respond to my open call. And so I don't really have a good comparison. But for women, it was each woman who talked about it was like, well, nobody knows. I don't most people don't even know I'm a veteran. And so and they had these amazing stories of like what they had done. And I was that's that's how the podcast started, because I wanted to hear more stories because I was just so blown away by what they had done. And so you're right. We don't talk about it enough. And I think veterans in general don't talk about it enough, but I think women definitely struggle to talk about it, which is yeah, that's uh, so it's a beautiful thing, Amanda, what you're doing here, like helping these stories stay out there. And, you know, I just appreciate being able to keep Ashton's name alive. Uh, she, you know, was an incredible member of our Air Force and she wasn't quite 22. Yeah, I said I misspoke earlier, but um, I mean, can you even imagine like being that young and uh you know, that's, but man, she crammed a lot into those years. I remember hearing her stories. And uh, so I'm just really proud of her and the accomplishments that she did on our team. And I, I would just love people to know that she died honorably and she did a lot to like really advance women's affairs in, in Panzer province. And, you know, she, she took care of all of us and, you know, I've been able to actually like go to Indiana and she's buried outside of uh, Indianapolis and I've seen her grave. And uh, one of the special things that I've been able to do over the past few years, I set up a scholarship in her honor and uh, it's set up at her high school where she graduated. And so every year now for the, I think this will be the third year, we award some scholarships to some graduating seniors. And, you know, it's just, I knew I needed to do something. And I know people are like, well, there are other people who passed away. Yes, there were, um, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Stratton, he left behind his wife and children and you know, Army Master Sergeant Blue Row, the same, you know, left behind his his family. And Ashton was very young. I mean, it was just her. So, and then 
our Athens legal advisor, you know, his family in Afghanistan had to fortunately deal with that. But like, I noticed what I was noticing is that Colonel Stratton, there was, you know, a room in the Pentagon named after him. There was a street in um, at Offutt Air Force Base named after him. And I'm sure that the army, you know, did similar things for Sergeant Rowe. But like, I started to wonder, like, why don't, like, why are we not recognizing her? And uh, like, why is it so hard to get females who have passed away, like recognized with these, these same things? So someday I'm going to have something really, really big named after her in Indiana <laughs> or in the Air Force. It's going to happen. But um, I, I started with the scholarship at least. And uh, so that's where we are with that. And I'm, you know, I'm, it's an honor to be able to raise the money. And I have a team of people in Indiana who help me and uh, it's turning into a special thing. That's really cool. An F-16 pilot that we actually went on a trip to Norway the summer before he, I guess the fall before he died in an F-16 crash and they have a memorial fund for him and, and they have a run that we participate in. And it's just uh, the Luke, Luke Grunther Memorial Foundation. And I think it's just, it's when you know someone who died, especially when they're close to you, like you had a special relationship with Ashton and Luke is the only person I know who's died on active duty. But like he really changed Memorial Day because I finally got it because I knew someone and I knew his family had to go on without him and how hard it is. And, and so that's that's why I'm so passionate about talking about the stories of people who've died and especially women because there's not enough stories about women and there's this whole like idea that women weren't in combat until (laughs) until like recently and it's like no that's not how it works and so I just I'm really passionate about talking about our stories because I want people to know and to help people understand like why women are doing the amazing things they're doing is because we've always done it and we just now have the opportunity to do that. Yes, that is spot on, Amanda. I mean, so many of our like women, I mean, it's like I give so many of these women credit, like they have families and children and, you know, you have the sadness of leaving your like little kids behind. And I mean, I've seen it. I know you have too. And I just feel like they carry forward probably even more like pressure and like guilt about it. And, but they do it because they love it and they love serving our country and they're great at what they do. Yeah. So I, I know you will never have a shortage of stories to tell about all these, about all these women. That's, that's for sure. I have a long list of people, which is great because my biggest fear when I started the podcast was I was like, how am I going to find people to be on the podcast? And now I'm like, I have too many people. <laughs> which I don't have too many, but I just don't have enough bandwidth to do as many podcasts as I have people waiting. So that's okay. I mean, everything happens, you know, time. So um, you're just, at least you're doing it, which is more than like most people. So, so I know we spent a lot of time on the PRT and talking about action, but I felt like it was really important to talk about that aspect of your military story but is there anything from your time in the Air Force, either before or after the PRT, that you want to end the interview? We still have one more question, but end the interview talking about you. Yeah, I mean, I know most people would probably like hear something like this and think, wow, like, <laughs> how do you like, how can you like continue to to do this? I mean, I still like I had one more deployment even after that to Iraq in 2011 and um, like we closed on like our mission there. And that was also very hard. Um, but it was like, I think back to the stuff we accomplished, like 
again, opportunities that no one will ever have, like are very like special to me. And so I think, you know, for anyone who's listening to this, who's like thinking about the military and, you know, you hear like these hard things that happen, like there's just, there's so much more to it though. You know, it's the people that you meet, it's the opportunities you have, it's the chance to really grow and be pushed and to lead and to make decisions and to take initiative. And, you know, these are not things that I've seen are common in the outside, like outside the military. And so I just... I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have grown up in this environment. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't like grow up thinking, Oh, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. I'm going to go to the air horse Academy. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Like those were all very foreign things to me, but like, this was my path and it, it was hard. Um, but it brought me here and I'm very grateful for it. So I would encourage people to, do things, do the hard things that push you out of your comfort zone and then get back up when you fall back down because that's life. I mean, you have to make the decision to keep moving forward. Uh, I know too many people who have made the decision not to, and uh, like, that's not, it's not okay. You know? And I mean, I'm happy to come back on someday. You know, if you ever want to talk about what it's like to go through therapy for PTSD or, you know, have those dark days, but like, I'm, I'm going to let people know you you have to, at some point, if you want to get healthy and move forward, like accept that you can go to therapy, people will help you. And you'll develop like a really good resiliency like toolkit. So that way, when you do have those hard days, you know, like you can get through hard things because you've been through harder things. And, you know, I mean, I have a few decades now under me, <laughs> so I have that perspective, but I can see why it's hard for, you know, our airmen who are probably in their early 20s who don't really have a lot of life experience or, you know, anyone who's listening to this, who's, you know, still very young, like you could imagine like, you know, something happens and you're like, this is the end of the world. Like, I don't know how I can go on or, you know, this broke breakup happens or I didn't get this job or, you know, someone close to me died. Like I can see why it's hard for people, but I promise you, if you go to therapy and you dig deep and you reach out and you share your story, like you inspire other people and help them through their hard times too. So. And this episode actually has really great timing because next week's episode is with the Cohen Veterans Network. And we talk a lot about the free resources they offer to post 9-11 veterans, active duty service members, and their families to deal with any sort of mental health problem that you're facing, especially PTSD or anything military-related, but it doesn't have to be military-related. If you're struggling with your mental health and you need help, reach out to the Cohen Veterans Network. You can go to cohenveteransnetwork.org slash clinic to find a clinic near you. There's almost 20 clinics nationwide, so it's a great resource to help you and go check it out now. And if you want to learn more, come back next week for that episode, which will go live on Tuesday, June 1st. I love that you covered that. Yeah. I mean, I don't want anyone to be deterred by listening to a conversation like this. I mean, that you're going to have risks in life, no matter what job you go into. So serving in the military is an honor. I want people to know that you can't buy your way in. You can't pay any amount of money to put on that uniform. So, you know, serving is truly an honor and, and it's, it's very difficult to come into the military, especially right now, you know, we're, we're heavily manned right now. <laughs> so we're, you know, like, it's interesting. Uh, so if you're thinking about it, it's a serious commitment, but it's very special and very rewarding. 
Do you have any last advice that you want to pile on for women who are listening who are considering joining the military? Yeah, I would encourage you to reach out, talk to other women who have served, um, get their perspectives, and then you know if it's something that you're really interested in, pursue it. You'll be doing something that most people in our country will never do. And I guarantee you, it'll help you grow, get experience, and it'll shape your future self. So I'm an advocate for it, but I also know that, you know, there's challenges that come with it too, like any job. So do your research, reach out to people like Amanda and I, and, you know, a lot of the other people that women that she's interviewed and, um, you know, we're always here to help. I think that's what's special about our, our women like community. Like we want to help guide people and like, so if you're interested, ask us and we will help you. Yeah. And if you're interested and you have questions about the military, I have a girl's guide to the military. So I'll link to that in the show notes. And I also have a girl's guide to the military YouTube channel where I'm working to cover different topics and trying to get more information out there to help women who are joining the military. So go check that out. And I'll link to both of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast and talking with me about a really hard topic, but really important topic. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Amanda. I uh, thank you to all of your listeners too. It's a really special community that you're part of and that you've created. this week's episode of women of the military podcast do you love all things women of the military podcast become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review it really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow are you still listening you could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book women of the military on amazon every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.